welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am one of your hosts, John McMahon. Joining me on the other line, she's hiding smuggled caviar in an 80s hi-fi stereo system. It's Danielle Hanley. Oh, that was such a good one. Thank Hi, you. John. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, we're in the middle of a snowstorm in the so-called North Country. It's your uh, birthday? It, it is my birthday. Uh, at 7.39 p.m. on my birthday, we are recording a podcast. Love it. Love um, it. Which is has very little connection temporally <laughs> to when people are actually going to be listening to this. So no, no reveals about the actual date of my birthday, I suppose. I think that's right. Because it I could think- be like two months from now that people actually hear this in the world. (laughs) You don't know. Uh, Welcome back, listeners. Thank you for returning for our segments, for the shtick, for a little bit of political theory with your Americans. And a lot of conspiracy theories. (laughs) Conspiracy theories. We've got more of those coming, is my understanding. Um, I haven't been fully briefed on what they are yet. I have some very vague ideas, but I'm going to find out with you, the listener. It's on a need-to-know basis. (laughs) (laughs) Sure is, and I do not need to know. What the audience needs to know, Danielle, look at that, is that we're discussing Americans, Season 1, Episode 2, The Clock. Directed by Adam Arkin and written by Joe Weisberg, one of the showrunners of The Americans. And uh, Danielle's going to give us the IMDb summary, which this time we fact-checked before we went on there. Yeah, we definitely we combed through it already, so we know that it's at least more correct than last time. So the clock, the IMDb summary is, when Philip and Elizabeth are given an urgent task to plant a bug in Defense Secretary Casper Weinberger's office... They risk exposure when an unwilling maid of the Weinberger home refuses to cooperate. Very dramatic. Very dramatic. All right, let's get into let's get into first impressions. What was your first impression? Uh, my first impression, I'll, I'll share two of them. One is that I'm not a hundred percent sure this is the greatest Americans episode ever. Okay. Actually, uh, we can talk maybe about some of the reasons why. And second is that I had questions about Philip's character development or the character turn that Philip undergoes from being not just willing, but advocating defection to the United States multiple times in episode one to, we don't know exactly how much time has passed, but not much time uh, yeah. in Americans verse to now being fully all in, beating people up, like willing to risk arrest, willing to risk death in a, a new way for their mission, some kind of like almost a recommitment. And I'm not 100% sure the show gave us the reasons why or how Philip has gone this possible turn. I want to frame it as a possible turn, yeah. not necessarily a, this is a totally different Philip. So that's interesting because I think my read on that, and I also picked up on like, oh, okay, like we're just really doubling down here. But my read on that was it's connected to the relationship with Elizabeth. Yeah. Right. That like, she's the one driving that bus. And and like, I think that's like where in this episode we do see him double down is when she is being a real hardliner. And so like their closeness is now like impacting we might even say like impacting his judgment and, and perhaps that's what accounts for it. But I'm, I'm with you that I wasn't like the most convinced. I do think that the pilot was a stronger episode, (laughs) Um, but I was on the edge of my seat and like very stressed out during this episode. I was like, Oh God, they're going to like, 
oh, they're going to catch the the maid with her bag in the room. Like we've already been told by the episode that this is a weird thing. Philip already said this is a weird thing. Now she's in the room with the bag multiple times. Like, mm-hmm. oh, God. The clock's there. The clock is not there. Oh, my Philip God. Philip is in the woods behind the Weinberger household <laughs> checking on some super high-tech 80s <laughs> spy equipment. Recorders and, uh, you know, something that looked like an answering machine that my parents had when I was little. Several answering machines. Yeah, that um, were connected to each other. (laughs) So one of the things that is tied to this question of the Philip Elizabeth relationship in the way you put it. And this is one of the, this is maybe a little bit picking up on one of our conversations from the last episode is the way in which the Jennings quote unquote, the Jennings nuclear family comes under greater consideration, greater depiction, greater interrogation, like more emotional circulations and currents happening in this episode. So I'm wondering how you, Danielle, as a first time watcher, thought about Henry and Paige on their own or vis-a-vis Elizabeth and Philip as they get a little bit more time, a little bit more actual characterization in this episode. Yeah. So I I love that question because I think the thing I really was paying attention to in this episode or, or rather sort of be aware of as this episode went on is we kept coming back to the kids, right? We, and, and the, those moments between, Elizabeth and Paige around like bra shopping and earrings. Like there were these intimate moments between mother and daughter that I think like we had in the, in the pilot, we had Philip like being protective. Right. Mm -hmm. And like going to beat that dude up, which Mm -hmm. a great costume at the end of the last episode. And he does it. He does do a different version of dirtbag Philip costume (laughs) as the with the viola story. Yes. Oh, the mustache. Um, but so we had these like more intimate moments and moments that felt like more conventional in a way Mm. that was juxtaposed to the sort of like other circumstances of this family. And I think we also got a little bit of that between, um, Philip and Henry right around the toothbrush, right? Like there were these like really... I would call them just like normal um, interactions. And there was something off-putting about those normal interactions for me. And the and the just like the dramatic shift, right? Yes. In in the sense that the toothbrush moment could have been a bad laugh line in a sitcom moment. Totally. I will totally. say though that the 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 director of this episode, Arkin does call attention to this in one particular moment. So one of my favorite shots from the episode is towards the end, Elizabeth is piercing the ear of Paige in kind of the dark, sitting on the bed. Really struggling with this. Why didn't they walk downstairs to the kitchen? Question number one. Why didn't they go to a shop that was sanitized? (laughs) Number two. I'm, you know what? I'm sure. I'm sure that Elizabeth knows how to sterilize needles. I'm, I'm sure that needle was subjected to, to, to fire. Listen, now we're we can come back to this later, but I just want to say, if Elizabeth is willing to like show her sterilization skills to Paige just out in the open, Paige knows. (laughs) 
what travel agent needs to know how to sterilize needles? What question. travel agent comes home with like bruised ribs <laughs> <laughs> that they're just pulling up in the in in the kitchen like during dinner? Like, oh, my ribs are bruised. Oops. <laughs> So we 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 do get a close up of the rib bruise, the rib bruised Philip, down in the laundry room, if I remember correctly. And so then Elizabeth is in the middle of piercing Paige's ear, and there's just this single, very large drop of blood (laughs) that falls from Paige's ear, and they make a point of showing it on the like Uh, yellow pillowcase that for some reason is the surface of the ear piercing operation. Again, Um, all all that is to say (laughs) that. I think you're right about the juxtaposition of the nuclear family dynamics with yeah. the you know violence of the of the rest of the story of the Philip Elizabeth story um, in this episode, and that's the moment where I think they were showing or calling attention to that particular juxtaposition. Here yeah. is the blood that is literally being spilled, and we are going to show the spilling of it in this yeah. close-up of just a drop of blood on the pillowcase. Well, and I think, right, like, there's a way in which, because as audi- as the audience, we're, we're, I wouldn't call us omniscient, but we know a lot more than, yes. than um, maybe each character does, at least at face value. Like, we know and are aware of this juxtaposition. We we are sort of along for the ride. And so I think then juxtaposing the, the we'll call it spy life and <laughs> family life. But are the spy life and family life really a dichotomy? Daniel? They are not because this <laughs> is a both and kind of podcast. <laughs> and a both and show of Oh, yeah, totally. Well. But I think like the... The point that I was that I'm driving at is that the juxtaposition also works, I think, to foreshadow, right? Where, uh, you know, whether or not we'll see whether my predictions and my my conspiracy conspiracy theories like come to fruition, but like these kids are going to get bloody at some point, right? Like that's got to happen, and no like ear piercing blood on the pristine yellow pillowcase. Yellow is a choice. Not, especially because Paige has a, like, the wallpaper in Paige's room is incredible. I'm jealous. I would like it in my own domicile, please. (laughs) But, yeah, so I think, like, there's a lot of things happening. There's a lot of things happening with their family. But then I think also I'm fascinated by the sort of suburb life and the way in which that, that is the ground for this relationship that Philip and. I mean, Stan and Philip even talk about that in the episode, right? Stan says something about, Oh, I'm used to a big city for your first street, second street, street, Lincoln, Lincoln, Washington. And they're on like golden meadow lane or whatever the fuck. And, you know, and it's like very (laughs) frou-frou suburb, bougie ass street names. But like if they were in a city, right. Stan couldn't just like mosey on over and like hang out in, in one's apartment, you know, like to your point, mosey over and hang out because his own domestic nuclear family went to the movies without him because he was working <laughs> he was late at work. yet again. And like, this is another both and place, right? Where the last episode and 
ends with, or like one of the last scenes in the last episode is Stan coming over because he like thinks that the neighbors are harboring this like KGB agent. Right. <laughs> Spoiler, they were. True. <laughs> <Stan was laughs> You're not right. wrong, Stan. Yeah. Um, but so like this is another bull fan because like, there is a way in which him coming over is sort of an extension of his job. And it's also like an extension of the relationships that develop in the suburbs, which are like part of this, this like idyllic domestic life. That's an excellent point, Danielle, because we could take it even further to say that the show is hanging a giant red what is going on with these suburban relationships light over the Philip and uh and Stan relationship. Yeah. Because there's a certain bourgeois suburban faux nicety superficiality, right? To the yeah. standard, stereotypical or caricatured suburban neighbor relationship. <laughs> and on the one hand, the show is positing something much deeper, even already here in episode two between Philip and Stan, a certain mm-hmm. closeness that transcends or supersedes or goes beyond that's the suburban niceties. Yeah. And on the other hand, it's the fakest possible relationship because Philip is a secret undercover KGB agent who lives across the street from the FBI. But also like, that's exactly what those relationships Mm -hmm. are, right? Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking about my dad and our neighbor who he's like constantly both locked in a war with the neighbor, like also (laughs) brings us cookies and like, you know, lets my dad rent out one of his sheds for my dad, who's a carpenter, his tools, right? So there is this, like, I think these suburban relationships are oftentimes fake is maybe like a, like too harsh, but at least like (laughs) premised on false. (laughs) We'll go with fake. Um, and the FBI agent KGB spy of it all just like heightens that, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. it heightens something that is like occurring in the everyday, which is, I think what I appreciate about the, like the banter and and the closeness, like, of course they're not actually close. Of course they don't actually know anything about each other. My whole family has jokes about this neighbor who we like love dearly, but also we just like, there are jokes upon jokes because there's like that closeness. That's not really closeness. Yeah. And it reveals itself in multiple different conventional ways within the plot, the kind of minor plots of this episode where Stan does love having a brewski with Philip as you will come to see Danielle, <laughs> right? Sure. There is this like the masculine urge to go play racquetball in the suburbs. That is very strong. <laughs> that is very strong in the Americans. I feel okay. Spoiling that. Not the first racquetball fine. combo. There will later be seen later be scenes of them playing racquetball. Racquetball together. is like prime eighties nostalgia vibes. It's true. I, we were going, to save the racquetball and the masculine urge to play racquetball for the bar of nostalgia, but we're bringing it here because we'll it's relevant. It. Yeah, it's fine. Um, I wonder if when we have our special 80s correspondent guest coming on later in the season, <laughs> if he actually played racquetball during the 80s. We'll have to ask him. 
or if he still plays racquetball. Look, so <laughs> we have time for a personal aside, Danielle. Obviously, we have my time for my it. younger sister and I overlapped for one year of undergrad. She's a few years younger than I am. Okay, so we were both at the University of Denver the same for one year. My last okay. year, her first year, and uh, we ended up like the thing we did God. to hang out together was play racquetball at the gym at the University of Denver. Circa, we're talking like oh nine. Okay. So this is not racquetball, but I do feel like it's the same vibes. There was, I had a friend in grad school who was a few years, who was like four years below me. And he had been like a varsity squash player Mm. in college. And when he got to Penn, he had no one to play squash with. So he just taught us all. So then we would have these like crazy squash tournaments on Saturdays. Can you, Danielle Hanley, explain to me why squash and why racquetball are different? Because I really could not in the slightest guess. Uh, yes. One, it's different. It's different equipment and the rules are different. Mind blown. <laughs> All right. Anyway, <laughs> I, I feel like there's going to be a lot of racquetball talk on this, on this podcast. <laughs> and I feel okay about that. I think Danielle, whenever we're safe and like workable logistically to be in the same location <laughs> in honor of Stan and Philip, we have to go play racquetball and Great. report and report back to the listeners. Great. We'll make goes. a bonus pot about it. <laughs> 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 Episode coming your way. Summer 2022. <laughs> racquetball. When I'm finally like good to get in a car again and drive in weather. That's not snowy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have one, one more point about, yeah. Uh, nuclear family of the Jennings. And I know we have a, a, a family of contrast to the Jennings in a number of ways that we want to discuss as well. And that is that the kids play not only this role about the domestic sphere, this role about juxtaposing the spy life with the family life, even though it's a both and situation and all of those things. There's also a way in which they're interesting kind of structurally or narratively to the Americans as a whole in the sense that they are characters who both know a lot more than we as audience members do because they live in the house with Philip and Elizabeth and they know a drastic amount, as far as we know at this point, a drastic amount less about Philip and Elizabeth. So the way in which they are arguably a sort of audience surrogates for like the naivety of being a child yeah. Even though if they're older kids in Paige in particular, they are not quite that because there's ways in which we as viewers know so much more than them. Yeah. Well, and I think, I wonder if this is another case in which we're sort of back into how this show is amplifying dynamics that like exist conventionally. And what I mean by that is like, how much did you know about your parents when you were 12? Yeah, great question. Not a lot. I'm just thinking back to, um, like, I'm think I have this like one memory. So my grandparents used to have this massive Christmas Eve party, and one year my mom's and I remember we were like, I must have been like seven, because I think my littlest sister was already born, or my second youngest sister was already born. And don't worry, listeners, the Hanley sisters, the whole gaggle of them, there will be a future episode. Yeah, there there are three of them. They'll be they'll they'll be here. We're gonna make them talk about political theory with us. <laughs> um but anyway, my 
my mom was like, okay, we're not going to go this year because like it's snowing and the party and this and that. And then like my parents went to the party. Right. And I was like seven. And so just even like, <laughs> even that it was like, okay, well there you're right that Paige and Henry as children are like exist in this more intimate space and relationship than we as the audience do. But on the other hand, the like secrecy of Philip and Elizabeth is just like an amplified version of what exists between parents and children at that age. Yeah. No, I think that that's, that's an interesting way to think about the relationship between them. And especially when paired with your suspicions of what the children do. And <laughs> they do know, know everything. <laughs> to be, to be determined, um, unless you've already watched the show and you know the answer to that question. <laughs> okay. Should we talk maybe a little bit about, um, what race is doing in this episode? Yeah. And I think that, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of ways in which this show will sometimes obliquely make American racism. And I think oftentimes by accident, a point of what the show is doing while also at other times giving into American racism in various forms. So we have in this plot, you know, the, the driving mechanism of the plot in this episode is that Elizabeth uses a poisoned tip umbrella to poison the son of Viola. Viola, who is the domestic worker at the house of Casper Weinberger, the Secretary of Defense under Ronald Reagan, so that they can intrude into Viola's house where her son is sick and make her steal a clock from Weinberger's study, take the clock to them, They install a bug on it overnight. She takes the clock back to the Weinbergers the next day, and then they will administer the antidote to Viola's son. Right? That's the plot mechanism for the show. Viola is a black woman, right? We're talking about Philip and Elizabeth is two ostensibly bougie white people, even though they're Soviets. Um, You could still be bougie as Soviet. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely. Uh, Very, you know, this like very fancy house. We don't know exactly where, somewhere in the suburbs of DC that this is the Weinberger's house. At least a fancy enough place where like they have a domestic worker. Yeah. And fancy enough to hold parties, right? One of the scenes in one of the B or C plots we get in this episode is a party at the Weinberger household. And so all this is to say that, you know, there's this, I'm not sure how much the show is calling attention to it versus I am calling attention to it as a viewer. The way in which there is this like taking advantage of the race, class, gendered oppression that Viola experiences in American life circa 1981 is the mechanism through which the Soviets do their spy mission in this episode. No, I think that that's right. And I think it is only magnified when you start to think about the family situation in Viola's house itself, right? There's, there's no like father present. And that is also something that like Philip and Elizabeth are exploiting. Right. So like they're layering on this, these forms of exploitation like onto a position that is itself experiencing exploitation already in these in like race gendered and classed ways. 
Yeah. And I mean, to have, so there are a couple places to go with this. One is a, like a history corner moment. We love. I, I don't know if this is what they were thinking, the creators of this show, but it is indeed true that the Soviets, one of their core propaganda strategies was, this is more so in the 40s and 50s and 60s, but it was to say, look how racist America is. Here in the Soviet Union, we don't have those problems. There is a large, large, large amount of Soviet propaganda about racism that's documenting racial violence in the U.S. Again, this is a earlier than the show is set, but it is indeed true that the USSR was paying close attention to and using the fact and the brutality of American racism in their understanding of their role vis-a-vis the U.S. Well, that is super interesting and not something that I knew. And, and I wonder, like, Viola has that line where she's like, nobody, nobody pays attention to me. I can do whatever I want. And like, there is something so like bleak about that, right? Like the, the, like her invisibility in this house as a function of, of like her like race, gender, class position and the confluence of those, it just like, it both broke my heart, but also it is like precisely what enables this manipulation to take shape. Right. I mean, it's, it's both the, the invisibility and the hypervisibility of yes. her as a black woman in uniform, right. In a yeah. domestic workers and a maid's uniform at the Weinberger house, her hypervisibility to Philip and Elizabeth that then takes advantage of the invisibility she operates in as well. So it's exactly. the, you know, the classic paradox. It's not an original thought of mine. Any number of black feminist writers have talked about this dynamism of, um, or yeah. duality of invisibility and hypervisibility. I feel like there's a link here also to the, like the domesticity and suburbs and the nuclear mm-hmm. family that we were just talking about, like that there's a link back to that. And I think this is a place where, I don't know, my read of the show, at least this episode was like, Ooh, we're like really playing into these like racist tropes where like single mother, domestic laborer, like has to like in the city. Right. So there's a, you know, so there's the city suburbs, there's the two parent household, one parent household has to call the brother in to be the muscle. Like there's something like real tropey about all of that. There's something tropey about it. We'll want to pay attention to that, especially actually in the next episode. I was thinking about an episode that's coming up um, where they will raise questions of racism in the U S and the Soviet Union and communism in different ways in the next episode. Okay. But there's one other moment of calling attention to slash hypertropiness of race in this episode that has to do with Stan and the FBI. Oh, this line, this line was rough. This was a, this made me feel like we need a segment every episode where it's like, what's the cringiest line? Because I think this line is actually, (laughs) this would win, this wins so far. Stan is going to win cringiest line of the week, mm -hmm. 89% of the episodes. No one on this, on this uh, podcast episode is surprised about that. And we're only two episodes in, (laughs) but when Stan is, when they're confronting the, the guy in the record store and Stan's like, yeah, I can't do anything, but this guy, 
this guy is one of three minorities in our office. They're not going to touch him. I was like, oh God, like that is disgusting. And it just, it, it brings, it articulates all of the, like the sort of, I wouldn't call them subtle, but at least like unarticulated observations that we made around, you know, around viola and, and like, working class and this and that it just like it it vulgarizes all of that right that's the that's the right way to put it because it's in that very vulgarization to use your perfectly apt phrase that captures both the maybe commenting on but definitely falling into tropes of right yeah both dynamics are part of the vulgarization oh that one that one was uh very very tough i will Um, i will say though this is not a by any means defense of that line this show in this episode in particular definitely willing to show the fbi violating multiple civil liberties protections well established to we love with the (laughs) stereo shop guy oh yeah and i was like i'm like yeah, let's show the FBI in a bad light. This dude just like living in domestic bliss on Golden Cottage Lane or whatever. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let's get the like, let's get the down and dirty. And then he like rolls in later with the caviar. I'm like, get out of here. He stole. He stole a five hundred dollar uh, tin of beluga caviar from the soviet union <laughs> now granted like that was probably stolen that was stolen from the embassy by nina nikolaevna in exchange with the stereo guy you are so good at names it is scary <laughs> oh I've, i i've had the benefit of seeing the show multiple times and but once also in my being life able to say them <laughs> once in my life having spoken some russian um so <laughs> nina nikolaevna steals the caviar from the offices and gives it to the stereo guy in exchange for stereo equipment or whatever. So it's technically stolen material from the first place. Never, nevertheless, Stan's gonna it steal it. It is not Stan's to steal. Stick his like pinky finger into the caviar in front of the stereo guy, and then take it to join Bruce with his bro. I just want to say, I am an avid Top Chef watcher. And usually when I'm on the bike, I'm watching old episodes of Top Chef. And I was recently rewatching the first season. And in the first episode, the contestants are like in Hubert Keller's kitchen, Florida Lee, in San Francisco. And one dude puts his finger in the sauce and then puts it in his mouth. And Hubert is like, get out of my kitchen. <laughs> and that is what I wanted to yell at Stan. Like, get out of my kitchen. Why are you putting your finger? Like, listen. Okay, you want to like have bruise with your bro? That's fine. But like, you put your finger in that. That is not sanitary. Like, this is gross. <laughs> I, I do appreciate that when they had bruise and caviar, they used tortilla chips. That's they the whole just, thing. They just rolled out the bag of Tostitos. That's what he had. That's I know. The, that's the salty thing he had. Oh my god, the finger, I, the finger in the caviar, like really just like. Got my hackles up. <laughs> I have never eaten caviar before. No, me in neither. My life. Um, as a practicing vegetarian, I would not at this point. I'm even... not a practicing vegetarian, but I don't eat fish or anything from the sea. All right, that's that's a reasonable policy. 
Should we go on to some shtick and some segments? Yeah, let's get into some segments. Okay, so first segment is borrowed nostalgia for the unremembered 80s. Update, I still have no idea what the reference is too. So I guess we're going to have to start getting guests on soon (laughs) so that you (laughs) might find out what the reference is. Um, A few few minor things and then maybe one or two major things. Just some heavy Casper Weinberger energy in this episode. (laughs) I appreciate the shout out to somebody who helped oversee really terrible things, but Casper Weinberger made it onto the Americans. All right, and a much later note, uh, the headphones, <laughs> very severe pre-my-first-Walkman headphones oh. that Philip and Elizabeth are using as part of their spy gear. The, like, nude-colored, like, in-the-ear. Gross, cla- gross plastic nude. I, I never had those, but it, like, it's, like, every... TV, like spy TV show that I've ever seen, like that's what they used. <laughs> yeah, it's halfway between those and the yellow Walkman earphones. Oh, I had those I my had. first Walkman. Oh, those I had. Uh, first tape I ever had was um, Boys to Men two, it's and much second better. was Green Day Dookie. Those are great. I, was... I think the third was TLC Crazy Sexy Cool. And I now will I'll stop. <laughs> stan all of those. That's some great music taste by still a young on my playlist. Well, <laughs> obviously, I mean below the rock, but like they're on the list. Um, we slightly will, below the rock. Do I need to tell on my like on my, on my yes. terrible music tastes? I think I have to. You have from first of all, day. you have great music taste now. Now, but did you not before? I think the first CD I bought with my own money was, I can't believe we're revealing this on air, was Smash Mouth. Like, the, the record that All Star Walking on the Sun it. is on. Those songs are also on my playlist. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. So, um, All Star and Walking on the Sun are not on the same album. Okay. Whichever... <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Little did I know this would reveal a lot about Danielle as well. So whichever oh one of those, <laughs> the first album, probably Walking on the Sun would be my guess. That album yeah. was, I believe, the first CD that I purchased in my uh, tween life. Honestly, I don't hate it. I do. On to more <laughs> borrowed nostalgia for the unremembered 80s. <laughs> the episode ends yeah. with the discovery that is made by planting this bug in the Weinberger study. It was all worth it. It was apparently was all worth it. So you have uh, Vasily Nikolaevich and Arkady Ivanovich. Arkady Ivanovich, who Danielle doesn't necessarily know this yet, is going to be our favorite minor, not so minor character of the entirety of the Americans. Ooh, I'm excited. Um, so Arkady and Vasily, uh, he listened to the tape. And we discover that what the Russians have found out is that the U.S. is in the process of building a ballistic missile shield, i.e. Reagan's Star Wars project, becomes a central plot point by the end of this episode. I do really appreciate, and and I feel like this this segment is a good place to talk about it, but I do really appreciate, like, the realness of these facts, right? Like... It's not like they're not making up another thing that is, like, different than what happened. They're, like, actually Mm, mm -hmm, using mm -hmm. 
the things that happened over the course of history, which like it grounds the show in a way that the like crazy spy antics don't. <laughs> so like there, there's something like there's something nice about that juxtaposition too. We love the juxtaposition. Sure <laughs> As it's, we're only, you know, an episode and a half in, and I'm sure the listeners are well aware of this. <laughs> oh, okay. Do you have any more borrowed nostalgia? Well, Reagan, listen, there's listen. The, we have more. We have there's a lot of Reagan antics adjacent in this episode. Well, and I like I loved it when Elizabeth was like, "Oh, Reagan, he just wants to kill us. He just wants to like destroy us." And I was like, "Yeah, we hate Reagan." Like I, I was like <laughs> really on board for. Listen, I'm in the same way that I'm on board the, for the sort of like the 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 way that they're playing with things that happened in in real life i'm on board for these two people hating reagan it makes me feel a solidarity with them strong solidarity strong solidarity especially when contrasted with stan's hilarious practical joke that he plays on his co-workers in the fucking fbi office at the end of the episode where (laughs) after maybe successfully recruiting nina nikolaevna uh the new person in charge of counterintelligence frank gad who we'll come to learn more about over the years um is on the phone with somebody we the audience think it could be reagan Right, he hands right. the phone over to Stan. Stan continues to play up the fact that it could be Reagan. Yeah. Hangs up, tells everybody, that was just Ronald Reagan on the phone. And then Gad, the director of counterintelligence, is like, no, it wasn't. It was the attorney general. Ha ha, Stan, <laughs> very funny. We understand that you are a Reagan fanboy. Yeah, we 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 get it, Stan. But also, like, <laughs> that's perfect because Elizabeth and Philip are the opposite of Reagan stands. <laughs> they sure are. Should we talk about a minor character of the week? Uh, yes, we should. I mean, I think that minor character of the week this week is Viola. Absolutely. Like, she just, like, first of all, the actress playing this part, just, like, chews the scenery. Like, she just does such a good job. But then also, I was just really impressed with, like, her her willingness to be like god's going to figure it out like god's going to figure it out because that gives us another sort of really interesting interplay between the position that Stan and Elizabeth have sort of staked out versus versus Viola and it's another like soviet union uh, communism what's religion doing in over there versus like America, like so religious, these sheep, blah, 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 blah. Right. So like that is like a more subtle thing, but like the way that Viola keeps coming back to religion reminds us that that is an aspect that has been so absent from the sort of domestic bliss that we've watched this couple exist in, in those, in those pockets in the, in the suburbs. So much so that, I believe it's Philip has the line that religious target targets who are religious are the worst. Yes. Yes, exactly. At one point in the episode. Exactly. So, and I just like, I like the fact that she really was not going to relent. Right. And she like tells her brother, like, she's just like, okay, you told me to do all these things, but like, I got to do what's right for my family. I just was really impressed by, by this character. Absolutely. Played by Tanya Patano. 
amazing. Just like A plus work. A plus work. If there's a second minor character of the week, uh, it's it's Nina Nikolaevna, um, <laughs> who will come to uh will will be one of the characters I feel okay spoiling this to Danielle will become a major character over yeah. the course of the next several episodes, which probably you could have predicted. Yeah, I mean like when we sort of went back to, well, I really appreciated the the scene where he recruits her. And then um when we sort of go back to her in the office and she's like, what's going on? And the dude's like, I'm not I'm not like important enough to know. I'm like, oh, this is not the last time we're going to see you. Got it, got it, got it. We will see Nikolaevna. And I, the, one of the other interesting shots of this episode is the way they chose to shoot the scene between Stan and Nina yes. at the market, yes. where they're cutting back and forth between the actual, at uh, the action between them right in three dimensional space at the market yes. itself and, then, and an extremely clear black and white long range camera yeah. from Gad and from Amador sitting yeah. in the FBI surveillance van and the cutting back and forth. Like if we had a lot more time in our hands, I'm sure we could figure out the intentionality of when they were cutting and when we saw what uh, version of what was happening. Yeah, and and also, like, I think there's probably a link, and I think we'll come to talk about this more. Like, if you're saying that she's, we're going to, we'll encounter her again, then I think we can put a pin in this and come back to it. But this question of, like, what's real, what's fake, like, where do loyalties lie, and, like, how is all of that jumbled together? I feel like this adds another layer onto it. It's like not surprising that in a show about spies and spycraft, we got a spy being turned, mm-hmm. right? But also like, I think it it's interesting to think about her being sort of being turned to the Americans, like out of force and Philip and Elizabeth sort of come, like contemplating like defecting themselves. Like, I think that there's like a parallel there that I want to come back to when I have a little bit more uh, earth under my feet of the show. Um, You are correct that my lack of commitment to a point about what they were doing with that particular (laughs) method of shooting this scene is related to future concerns is is point number one. Amazing. Um, And then the second point is that it's not the first time that another juxtaposition that you and I will be able to enjoy and discuss is the one between the tactics that Philip and Elizabeth are using. Mm-hmm. What kind of force are they using to turn yeah. their targets? What kind of coercion or force are Stan and the FBI using to turn their targets? Yeah. What is power? What is power, which we might actually talk about here uh, in a few minutes in another in form. Minutes. Uh, Danielle Dossier time, what theories and what wig commentary would you like to offer us today? Okay. First on the wigs, (laughs) the wigs were better this episode. Like for the most part, dirtbag Philip, like in the Viola apartment situation, I felt like this is obviously a wig, but also you're obviously a dirtbag, so it's hard to know if, like, is it a wig or are you just greasy? So uh, we'll give him a pass on that. 
We'll give him a pass. I thought that Elizabeth's wig, her like college student wig or like Russian nurse wig, unclear. Like <laughs> what? Or, I actually appreciated it because I think the bangs make it look like it's not a wig. So I was into the wigs this episode. Wigs, the wigs were better this episode. One thing that's interesting about the hair situation in this episode, Philip does not wear a wig when he is seeing Annalise. So this comes to my next point, which is that woman got out of the car. Like, we'll see you next episode, right? (laughs) Like, oh, I'll walk home, but uh, I'll see you next episode. She might as well have said, I'll see you next episode. So I feel like Philip not wearing a wig when interacting with Annalise is like, is about the way in which this is going to become some sort of important relationship. One point I'll make about Annalise as well, and I can't say more in response to what you just said, but a different point I'll make is that we spoke last episode about the way that the show opens with Elizabeth in the bar seducing Mm -hmm. the FBI agent. Yeah. This episode opens with the gender of the, like, spying via sex craft switch. This time it is Philip who is acting as the seducer towards somebody that he is soliciting as a target. So it's just interesting that after we talked about the gender politics of that in the last episode, how that initially somewhat gets flipped in this episode. Uh, Though I don't know if it actually fully gets flipped. It doesn't. It doesn't. Right, because, like, he's he's running her, Mm -hmm. and Elizabeth is manipulating the, the dude from the first episode, right? So, like, the the power dynamics don't don't really shift. Yes, they, they don't really shift so much so that, I mean, Annalise tells Philip as Scott, the Swedish... That, I was like, okay. Um, if you're going to be Swedish, use a you blonde need a wig. wig. Use a wig. That's, <laughs> that's a, what I'm you, saying. You have a blonde wig. It's <laughs> dumb looking, but you have one. I, I bet the KGB could have fashioned him a handsome Scandinavian wig had they so chosen. I needed him like in a Scandinavian wig and like one Cable of those knits. Chris Evans like <laughs> in Knives Out sweaters. As was just revealed and as I'm sure will come up more than once in the future, Danielle's Hollywood icon is Chris Evans. So that much so that upon receiving some good academic news earlier today <laughs> in sending her con- congratulations Congratulations. I included, this is Danielle's success, I should point out. I sent uh, a Chris Seven gifts of, of, of him pulling apart a piece of wood. It's from Age of Ultron. Don't oh, worry about I it. I <laughs> would not know that at all. It's a screen grab. It's fine. <laughs> I've sent Danielle that MCU gift. MCU chapter and verse. <laughs> five to ten times in our friendship. Oh, and yeah. only today, tonight, on the night of my birthday, the gift you have given to me <laughs> is telling me that that gift I have sent you a dozen times in our friendship is, in fact, from an uh, uh, MCU movie I have not seen. Wait, we need to have a Sean Hanley aside here. Um, Sean Hanley is my dad, and he's great. <laughs> and I often will send that specific gift of, of Chris Evans ripping the wood when my dad says something goofy. Because my dad, this is like, uh, so when the pandemic started, I was living with my parents. And so was my youngest sister, who's 10 years younger than me, and my brother, who is three and a half years younger than me. 
So we're all living with my parents. This is three out of the five kids. And we're like sitting around having dinner. And my dad turns to me and Tori, my sister, like full seriousness. Like, how can Chris Evans be Captain America and in the Fantastic Four? (laughs) Just like... Like, he couldn't wrap his brain around it. So now to bother my dad, I sent him that gif all the time. (laughs) My questions about that gift more revolve around the, uh, like, pectoral muscle situation of one Chris Evans. They love to put Captain America in a skin-tight, like, Under Armour, (laughs) not-branded shirt. In In Age of Ultron, that's there. It's like... A real big thing in Captain America, the Winter Soldier. I think we also get a version of it in Civil War. Like, it's just like, he's always in like skin tight athleisure. (laughs) At some point in the arc of this podcast, Danielle and I will discuss our conversation about sovereignty in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Honestly, we can also discuss uh, family in the MCU (laughs) when that chapter comes out. We can. And, And will. And, and we'll we'll have a, we'll have a corner. Do you have any other Danielle dossier items you'd like to you'd like to put in the file, so to speak? So I just want to like I, we've talked a little bit about it already, but just like in wrapping up Danielle dossier, thinking about like conspiracy theories and like maybe revisiting some theories. Again, the kids know everything. Like, <laughs> like the there's like a weird power dynamic with like. I bought this bra and you weren't there. And like, I'm going to pierce your ears and blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, we could read that as just like teenage strife, but like, I want to read that as like, I'm, I like know what your real life is. And these are my, like, these are my domestic rebellions until, until you let me in on it. Wait until you see domestic rebellions to come, Danielle. Love. And a practical question about mm-hmm. the kids and the <laughs> spies. How well do these children sleep that they never once are like, why the hell are my parents coming back in the house at 312 in the morning? Also, like, they just leave the kids? Yeah. Come on. It's, sub- it's suburban, idyllic hellscape of bourgeois norms and extreme... As someone who I grew up on Long Island, which is the perhaps the er suburban hellscape, I love it, but like, you know, for all intents and purposes. I grew up, that's like old school suburban hellscape. I grew up in new school suburban hellscapes in the suburbs of Denver, Colorado. So, I mean, let's not even get into the fact that I don't know where Colorado is on a map. Right, for a show that involves some international dynamics, Danielle's geographic um, (laughs) limitations are an interesting contrast. Well, we stopped at the Mississippi River in fourth grade, (laughs) and I just never learned where any of the states were. Strong East Coast bias. Oh, yeah. Fully. Do you have any thoughts on the travel agent situation? Oh, yes. Yeah. So I... I was, this is the thing that I kept coming back to because I feel like it's in the first episode, but like not as much. Not as much. And then in here, it's like, they're in the office several times. There are meetings. There, the like phone code SOS is like travel agent speak. Yeah. We get to meet 
minor character number three of the week, our third favorite minor character of the week, Stavos, who runs, he's like the office manager, the very friendly office manager. Yes, yes, yes. um, Who we'll get to see in in the travel agency. Yeah, I was I was sort of fascinated by the way like travel agents as a cover for Spycraft is like on the one hand so obvious and on the other hand like kind of ingenious. <laughs> like yeah, I guess this is a cover for if and when they have to travel, right? They go, but like, who's watching the kids? Like, who's watching the kids there is when the a, parents are jet setting? There is a neighbor or babysitter figure who I don't think we ever see again who was in this episode. Yeah, but like, who's watching the kids? And And if I was the babysitter in that house, I would be like, let me snoop. Oh, let me like, oh, here's a hollowed out cabinet in the laundry room. Like, I'm sorry. If anybody's watching the kids, they are figuring this out or at least part of it. Like, so, but the, so the travel agency on the one hand, very smart, like makes a lot of sense. Also, also perhaps fits into the eighties vibe of it all. Like, travel agents feel very 80s. I've never talked to a travel agent. My travel agent is kayak.com. <laughs> I will say, because I'm part of a state institution, yeah. when I make con- like conference travel arrangements, it is through a website. Not a person that I speak to, but through a travel agency website that charges my public university like $7 to for me to make a plane <laughs> reservation. Sure. And like, I'm <laughs> back you know, in the before times of that ways. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I grew up like super working class. So we weren't like talking to travel agents. My parents were just renting a house in North Carolina for two weeks and we were driving the 12 hours down there. Pile us all into the suburban. Nice. Suburban. <laughs> <Get good> at- <laughs> that feels like strong Long Island status. It's like strong Long Island nineties vibes. <laughs> Like my parents were like, no minivan for us. <laughs> no, thank you. I'm, I only have one sibling. We had a minivan in the nineties. Yeah. <laughs> minivans, minivans were like, I feel like my, my parents are always like a little bit resisting the suburbs. <laughs> Good for them. Congratulations yeah. to, to the, to the Hanleys. To Vicky and Sean. But yeah, I want to, I also want to like put a pin in the travel agent conversation because I feel like this is going to be like fertile ground for conspiracy theories. Yes. And I think I it's going to be fertile ground for major episode discussions, like, yeah. like structurally or narratively or politically or culturally, what is the work that is being done by yeah. the travel agents is a question that I think we will want to ask at some point in the future. Yeah. And I like, I like the choice because I do think it fits so many of these categories, but I'm like, I'm question. I've got questions. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. Okay. Should we shift into uh, our next segment? Gloss. We sure should. Gloss. <laughs> um, I'll I'll start with some Great. gloss. I want to return to our conversation from last week and continue the dialogue about Soviet aesthetic core because Love. the posters in the office. Uh, where Vasily Nikolaevich and Arkady Ivanovich are talking in this episode are incredible. 
I'm sure they are sourced from the actual Soviet Union. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't quite remember the Russian enough to make the translations. I could do some bad pronunciations of what the posters said that I did write down. I'm not going to. I okay. don't remember uh, what I believe one of them is courage is one of the words, which would also okay. make sense. But uh, I more just wanted to highlight the extremely, at the same time, extremely drab and very aesthetically interesting in other ways, uh, aesthetics of the Soviet embassy and uh, yeah. a couple of scenes that we get in there, including the like very stately pool of embassy staff where Nina Nikolaevna sits. Well, and also like, again, in contrast to the FBI offices we got last episode where like everybody's in a, like a blue suit and, and there's cubicle a, life. Yeah. And like, there's a vending machine. It's like a little bit, and the lighting is brighter, right? Like there is a way. There are which, lamps instead of fluorescent lights. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we get that sort of, we get that contrast with the, and the sort of like, I don't know. I think that's like what I expect the Soviet embassy to look like as opposed to like the U S which is just my like internalized nationalism <laughs> coming out. Absolutely. Do you have some gloss you'd like to offer? Um, I, uh, so we already talked a little bit about the, um, about Philip and Annalise and like the getting out of the car. But I, I thought that just the, the, like the whole thing of it. And also Phil, I really just back on the headphones and the recording <laughs> devices and just like the like, camera that Annalise like yes. hides in her cleavage oh when she's God. at the party. Just all of it. It's just, it's like so good. It's so good. I Is what appeals to you about that, Danielle, something about the materiality and salience of these physical objects in the world? Yes. Yes, it, it is absolutely that because there's something like transgressive about hiding a camera in your cleavage and about like pulling it out. And so then when she gets caught and I feel like one thing that this episode did that the, that the pilot does also is like, it starts off with these like high stress moments, Yes, right? Yes. She gets caught. She's like taken in. We see the camera. It's not small. No. I mean, like, it's like, it's there. It's, and it's not like, I, I think what I was maybe expecting is like, the kind of like James Bond spycraft where it's like a camera in a pen or whatever. <laughs> she's got a straight up camera that she's just like clicking pictures with like an, like an, uh, you know, like a wind up, like disposable <laughs> Kodak. Kodak camera that she just like shoved in her boobs. And like, we learned pretty quickly. She doesn't, she doesn't get caught with it, but there's something, yeah, about the materiality of, of all of these objects that like perform a kind of grounding, um, in an otherwise like pretty bonkers episode. Yes. One thing that makes me think of is to briefly make one more point about the discussion about Viola from earlier is the way in which this is going to be true of a lot of the targets, a lot of the people that Philip and Elizabeth are running, the show, for the most part, with a couple exceptions, makes a decision to never show or rarely show what these characters are ever doing 
outside of their direct or indirect interaction with Philip and Elizabeth, right? So mm. all of the plot development, character development, response to the Philip and Elizabeth situation for Viola in this episode happens off screen, right? We never yeah. see, you know, uh, much, or we get a we get one shot of, of Viola tending to her son, right? But that's all internal, right? It's all the, you know, the acting, like just in a purely embodied way without any dialogue. Um, so I was just thinking about the way that the show structurally doesn't give us a lot of um, additional interiority to these targets. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's right. And I think that's also something I like, I want to, I think I want to marinate on that a little bit. Me too. Me too. Which is why it's perfect for glass because we're opposed to logocentrism. Uh, <laughs> um, one, I have one other glass observation. Yeah. That is the Elizabeth, the dramatic scene in the back room at the travel agency where Elizabeth is like, if it comes down to it, I will kill myself so that you have plausible deniability. You yeah. take the, you like save yourself and the kids because I am not going to prison. I am not going to be tortured. Right. Yeah. You, I will die. You take the family, you take the kids, mm-hmm. you maintain the you know perfect, not so perfect domestic nuclear life. Yes. Uh, that was, I think what that did is it, it gives us a sense of the stakes for Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Whereas we have Philip like kind of wavering between these episodes about like defecting, not defecting, being on board, not being on board. And Elizabeth just being like, this is, this is what it is. Like he, brass tacks, bottom line, I'm not getting tortured. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm willing to take these risks, but like, this is what, this is where I draw the line. I thought that that was interesting. It was very interesting. Should we move to our final segment? Yes. All right. So you all entered the cave, talking about the cave last week. It's time to go back to the cave. We have gone. We have seen the light, Danielle. We are now returning to the cave. A twist compared to last week. Last week, Danielle had a brilliant exegesis (laughs) of the cave. Paired with a brilliant point about how the cave functioned is an allegory of the Americans pilot. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Out of this world. Amazing. <laughs> this week, we're going to do something that we don't know what we're going to do more of. We're going to, we made a list of some political theorists. I'm going to. It's a long list. <laughs> it's a long list. I'm going to uh, run a little random number generator, which I think we have a sound effect for. Ooh. And Danielle, we today are talking about theorist number 18 on our list. (laughs) Number 18 on our list (laughs) is one. I don't know if this is great or this is terrible. It is the one, the only, the mustachioed Friedrich Nietzsche. I mean, I've said this to you before, and I've said this to you on a different podcast before, but I'm going to (laughs) say it to you now on this podcast. Um, My dissertation chair, when I was talking to her about, like, what I should write my dissertation on. And her, her biggest advice was you have to write on something that you are able to wake up every day and like be excited and feel like you can conquer the writing, which is, which is great. And I was like, okay, like, cool. Conquer is like, interesting framing. I wanted, I desperately wanted to write my dissertation on Friedrich Nietzsche. 
but I knew that I wouldn't be able to get up every morning and feel like I could conquer Friedrich. And I was like, <laughs> okay. And, but <laughs> And yet here you are in early 2022, Danielle, and you have been chosen by fate. You must exhibit your own amorphity of oh the fact that we have been uh, put before conquering Friedrich Nietzsche vis-a-vis the Americans in yeah. this episode. <laughs> I guess like the Nietzsche that always, and this is, I guess this will be a moment where we like can dip into our own work, but like the Nietzsche that always comes to me first is the Nietzsche birth of tragedy. Um, It's the first Nietzsche I ever read. And also sort of the, um, the conflict and the, the relationship between um, Apollo and Dionysius between the sort of rational and the, and the spirited or the passionate. And I do think that there is that, that push pull happening in this episode. I mean, we can think about the, we can think about that tension as materializing in, in different characters and maybe like the relationship between, um, Philip and his rationalism and his disdain for religion and Viola as like, no, God will help me. Like God will figure it out. And like the violence that erupts out of that. Like, I do think that there is some like real Dionysian vibes like happening in that, in that apartment. And that's an, a notable observation because this is, not a particularly Dionysian show in general, yeah. I think. Or perhaps the more precise way to put it is that it's a show in which whatever potentially Dionysian elements exist are then always or always already sublimated back to the Apollonian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that that, that tracks with my my read of the show thus far. Was there any other Nietzsche? Nietzsche just, I mean, there's so much we could go to, but is there any other Nietzsche that you were thinking about? I mean, there's probably uh, something to unspool about like bourgeois suburban morality (laughs) and (laughs) the the genealogy of morals uh, by Nietzsche, which like we don't necessarily have to get into. I'm I'm sure Friedrich will probably return in the future. Um, Yeah, Friedrich was... Friedrich was gifted to us by the number generator this time, but we might we might invite Friedrich to the table later later in the That'll podcast. be less conquering, more inviting. We'll be yeah. We'll, be well that's our there. vibe. We're less conquering, <laughs> more inviting. That is so true. That is so true. And yet here we are talking about this show where somebody dies almost every episode. I think maybe the other Nietzsche element that we might just briefly raise to probably mm-hmm. again return to later yeah. is that there's there's something there's something stewing about subjectivity, intentionality, yes. consciousness, like, you know, is can can can, yeah. can we blame the eagle for hunting the poor lamb? Can we blame the Soviet spy for doing the Soviet spy thing? How do we consider the, you know, the consciousness of these characters vis-a-vis their actions? Well, and I would take it one step further, not thinking about the consciousness of the characters, but the other Nietzsche that popped into my head is uses and abuses Mm, of mm -hmm, history. mm -hmm. And like, I think we can take that, like into a meta analysis of the show and thinking about the pieces of like real history 
that are sort of populating the background here and like what's going on with that. But I don't have a... <laughs> I'm impressed we've got as far as we have <laughs> in, into the cave this week. Um, is I love it, this with our new With our new experiment. <laughs> I like this experiment. I think Nietzsche was a good one for this episode too because one, there's just so much... There's so many directions that Nietzsche could take us in but also like within and now i've only watched two episodes right but like there are a lot of things going on in each like there are a lot of plots and subplots and so a thinker that can help us grab onto different pieces of those plots and subplots and perhaps pull them all together i think is productive for us i would agree um it also recalls of course one of the classic lines of television history when one AJ Soprano repeatedly calls him niche in an episode of the Sopranos in trying and? to explain niche to Tony. So there's and? also that when we have, you know, <laughs> I, I will hold on to that memory as we went with Friedrich into the cave this week. Yeah. I mean, I've never watched the Sopranos, but I <laughs> love that. That feels like something that would happen at the Hamley household. <laughs> I like that. I like that yeah. for us. Um, Me too. All right. I think we have, you have any final thoughts you want to, you want to. No, I think like my, my final thought is that this episode made me even more excited to watch more. And I really had to like, at the end of the pilot, I was like, Oh, wow. That this is a lot. It's intense. I'm excited about it, but it's intense. And this episode, I really had to stop myself from watching the next one, which I think is a good sign. It also helped that this was like a tidy 46 minutes as well, opposed to an unwieldy <laughs> hour and 13. Yes. Also true. <laughs> but I think almost with no exceptions, except for perhaps the finale, I think we have a, some tidy... You know, these aired on, on FX, right? Not streamers originally, so they had to yeah. have... You know, I mean, there are commercial breaks. We get cuts to black for commercial yeah. break, uh, even as we're just streaming this now. So I think that uh, that ends our episode, our discussion of yeah. The Americans Season 1, Episode 2, The Clock. Next week, we'll be discussing Season 1, Episode 3, Gregory. Oh, and, uh, okay. Something we didn't do formally <laughs> at the end of the previous episode, which we need to take the time to do now, is we need to give a shout out to our to, to producer Amy. Yeah, we just want to say thanks to producer Amy for all of your help and support right. getting this, these episodes off the ground. Who may or may not exist and who may or may not be a future guest in producer Maybe. or non-producery form. Maybe producer Amy knows the reference of the uh, nostalgia for the 80s. I'm going to predict no. Okay. I'm gonna, a good prediction. This That can be a running subplot just between you and I, is that I'll predict who's actually yeah. going to be like obnoxious as me to get the reference. <laughs> Amazing. Well, this is, it has been really fun, you know, podcasting, walking into the cave, Getting ourselves out of the cave. <laughs> you know, it's tough. <laughs> it's a struggle. It's a struggle. So join us next time. Who knows who we'll go into the cave with next week on Not Quite Great Books, the TV, TV podcast. podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast which was created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon and kind of producer Amy. 
You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can find us at Gmail if you'd like to email us questions or things you'd like us to discuss, I suppose. NotQuiteGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. Our intro and closing music is Electrotrend 60s from Less FM on Pixabay. You also heard a free sound roulette wheel, which is our random number generator of political theorist noise throughout the episode. Until next week, bye!